Hello and welcome to the BitBlock Boom Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, producer of the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. And just for reference, I also produce the 4-Minute Bitcoin Podcast, available everywhere podcasts are available. Now, every August, I host the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of many of my friends. If you are interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit bitblockboom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. You see, BitBlockBoom is a true Bitcoin conference, and I really mean a true Bitcoin conference. On this episode of the BitBlockBoom podcast, I'm featuring a session from the 2020 conference by Chris Danen. Let's take a listen. BitBlockBoom! Hi, everybody. My name's Chris, happy to be here today. Uh, so I'm here representing Escher. Uh, a lot of you guys probably know uh, Escher is a, a developer uh, toolkit for using Lightning and Bitcoin liquidity against the US dollar. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, I'm going to talk about some more big picture stuff as soon as this loads. Uh, so internally, you know, before we develop products, we do a lot of research on what we think the utility of Bitcoin is in sort of a hundred year time scale. Um, you know, it's common to focus on its advantages technically over competing systems, uh, but, but really I think the big question is um, what is Bitcoin going to be used for in 25 to 50 years? Is this, should this be on? Oh, sure. Yeah, take your time. Um, so, oh yeah, I, I got plenty to say. Um, so the, the, the research that I'm going to show you guys today comes from uh, a, a form of what's called corporate ethnography. And if you're, if you're not familiar, uh, ethnography is sort of like a, an interviewing process that goes on within companies when they're having problems. So let's say uh, a corporation is losing money, they're not, you know, their, their objectives are not being met, uh, but they don't know exactly what's wrong. They typically hire uh, boutique strategy consultants to come in, kind of uh, tear through the company, interview people at all levels and try to figure out what's really going on, report back to the CEO and, and you know, offer some kind of recommendation. So uh, that's the work that I did for many years inside very, very big dysfunctional corporations like, thank you, uh, like Intel and Coca-Cola and GE and GE Capital and BlackRock and Amex. Uh, so I'm very cynical about the, the state of corporate governance and decision making um, and their ability to innovate in general. Um, which I think will become clear <laughs> throughout this talk. So uh, it, fortunately, Bitcoin can save them. They don't know it yet. And I think this is a narrative that needs to be discussed more. I think um, Bitcoin is obviously growing out of its sort of pirate days of being a, a, a rebellious technology, and it's sort of growing up a little bit. You know, when, when Paul Tudor Jones approves of it, that, that means something. Um, so the question is, what story do we tell the corporate folks? Uh, so just briefly an outline of this talk, um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about the process I just described. Uh, I'm going to talk about our findings, um, a little bit of evidence, uh, and then we're going to try to make sense of the phenomenon. Um, I'm going to make some quick forecasts, and then I'm going to talk about you know, how business is already trying to fix this problem and how Bitcoin can kind of slot in and help them. I'm going to move fairly fast. There's a lot of slides in this deck. Uh, I'll share it you know, for anybody that wants to see it. Um, so generally in business, we think in the manner on the left, default thinking, we analyze you know, data. Um, 
Typically, ethnographic consultants use the, the, the approach on the right. They use abduction, uh, which is essentially you know, combining data with the intuitions you get from, let's say, interviewing 1,000 people inside of a company um, and getting you know, a viewpoint from every different perspective. Uh, so this is you know, not meant to be used alone. It's meant to be used in, uh, in conjunction with data, you know, the type that McKinsey would generate. Um, but you know, like I said, this abductive approach doesn't get talked about much. So that's why I want to discuss it. Um, you know, philosophically speaking, uh, the, this, the antecedent of, of this kind of ethnography comes from a guy named C.S. Pierce, uh, who basically is saying that you should use a, a very, very well-researched uh, gut, gut hunch to kind of lead your hypothesis making. Um, so when we applied ourselves to Bitcoin, this is what we found, and this, I've been doing this about two and a half years. Um, the, the first iterative capital thesis that you guys may have read was sort of the first iteration, um, and since then I've, I've been doing a lot more. So. Um, Basically, there's two insights. The world feels like it's moving faster, and people blame technology. This is not you know, specific to crypto or Bitcoin or business. This is you know, people in their everyday lives uh, will say this again and again um, in surveys. Uh, and and you know, what, I, what I note, or what I've noticed, is there's a lot of leaderless movements lately. Um, so hashtag movements would be uh, an example of this. Um, Open allocation software startups like Spotify or GitHub, where you get hired and you don't get assigned or, or uh, allocated, you choose your own project, sort of a version of this. Um, Bitcoin, obviously, is a version of this. Um, corporate reorganizations are moving this way. They're trying to reorganize to be more self-organizing, less top-down. Uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street, if you guys remember, was sort of similar. There wasn't really a name or a face that led that. It was sort of grassroots. Um, the Arab Spring in 2011, so on and so forth. So what's going on? Um, well, since the 1960s and 70s, people have been observing in business and in culture that uh, the world is moving faster and that it's hard for us to deal with, um, particularly in organizations. So uh, let's look at some, uh, some anecdotal evidence uh, of what's happening inside corporations that might indicate that things are not going well, uh, despite their stock prices. Um, so in 1958, the, the average tenure of a corporation on the Fortune 500 list was 61 years. It's now, uh, as of recently, 24 years. Um, about half of management roles are redundant according to, I think that's a McKinsey quote. I have a lot of footnotes for this. Um, there are about 710 million hours per week done on compliance that doesn't matter. 50% of all of it doesn't add value. Uh, that's the equivalent of the work of 9 million people per year. Um, I think bureaucratic theater is a great term. Uh, in an analysis of more than 25,000 companies, the half-life was about 10 years. Um, the average holding time for a stock has gone from eight years to five days. And this is all since uh, 1958. Um, of U.S. companies, return on assets has dropped considerably. Uh, that is you know, generally taken to be a benchmark of performance. Um, <laughs> small firms are the only ones uh, getting patents um, by a factor of 16. Uh, and about half of all jobs as of 20, in 2013 were projected to be automated, uh, mostly uh, you know, administrative and, and sales jobs. Um, Productivity is at its lowest since 1945. Wages have only increased 12.5% since then. Real wages, I should say. Um, firm productivity has outpaced pay by almost 6x. Uh, and obviously, we also have corporations that are kind of getting ballsier with the way that they defy their constituents' um, Values. So whether it's you know Project Maven, which was a, a DoD uh, drone accuracy project that Google did that got a lot of um, engineer um, protestation, or you know the Facebook content moderation jobs, which kind of traumatized people. Uh, I think there's a class action suit about that, um, and you know obviously the various censorship wars on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, so what does this mean? Uh, 
why are older companies getting lost as the world moves faster? You know, they're incumbents. They should do just as well or better, you would think. Why is the world moving faster, and, and why does this change seem ubiquitous? So um, first, we're going we're gonna to dive into uh, a little bit of philosophy here. So there's a, a philosopher that I like a lot. His name is Bertrand de Juvenal. Uh, he has a book called uh, The Art of Conjecture, which is all about thinking about the future. It's a really cool book. Uh, the next few slides are sort of viewing this phenomenon through his lens. Uh, so he says, routines help save us efforts of foresight. If I have an operational recipe guaranteed to yield certain results, all I need to do is follow the instructions. Uh, nothing matters more to us than our relationships with other, than our relations with other men, and nothing is more important than to foresee the way other men will behave. So routines make people predictable, and corporations really value this, both internally for their employees and externally for their consumers. They like to know what you're going to do and what you're going to want next year. It's hardly surprising that the maintenance of a familiar social order has always been regarded as a common good. Uh, aberrations of conducts were, were condemned and change was feared and witches were burned and so on and so forth. Um, the idea of security afforded by the routine and familiar was so deeply ingrained that even extreme reformers appealed to you know, going back to the good old ways or the good old days. Um, he contrasts this with today where he says that technology has advanced what he calls the practical arts. And that term could mean anything from bookkeeping to movie making to letter writing. Uh, he, his argument is almost everything that we do now is a tighter turn. It, it happens faster. Um, and what that means is that it makes people more comfortable with, with rapid change. And it also means that you know, behaving ad hoc is not as dangerous. Uh, in, you know, in the year 1400, um, defying your parents' advice you know, could have been really deadly. Today, uh, you know, kids could do all kinds of stupid stuff and they're fine. We've, we've sort of supported humanity with technology and processes and rules that make it very safe. Um, and, and so people are fine with trying new things. Uh, there's plenty of safety nets. Um, so, you know, going back to the issue for the corporate world is that people are not as predictable as they were. They, they have different opinions, they have different tastes, um, and it's very hard to keep up with, you know, the meme economy, let's say, or the narrative. Um, and this you know, leads, leads right into Clayton Christensen's uh, innovator's dilemma. Why prioritize a product or a niche that has smaller margins today um, in an emerging market when you could focus on what you're good at and what you're making money at? So this is where corporations are at right now. They're trying to move faster, but they know that um, that's sort of a waste of time. They should really just get better at what they're doing today. And that's why um, you'll notice that uh, the, the overwhelming push is to keep you know, the new iPhone as similar as possible to the old iPhone while still adding some marginal benefit that sells it. So there's, there's uh, a desire to kind of slow consumers down a little bit um, because their tastes are, are changing too quickly or too unpredictable. Um, so, and so, you know, what is the solution to this? Uh, corporations have just decided to go into financing. That's easier. Uh, they're not going to make money off of their products. They're not going to make money off of, you know, meeting your needs better than their competitor. Um, they're going to make money off of financing whatever you're buying, and the good itself is a commodity. Um, so what, what's going to happen uh, as all this progresses? Um, well, so more bad news. Uh, the firm entry rate, which is, you know, the, f the number of new firms, uh, will continue dropping. It's been dropping since the late 70s. Um, Self-employment will keep dropping. Uh, there are more and more people working for, for large employers. Um, more small companies will close up. Uh, the companies that do stick around will be um, consolidating, you know, as you've seen in, in the financial services industry. Um, there's more and more M&A. Uh, 
the, and, and this is, um, some economists call this a state of graceful degradation, uh, where a system can maintain some limited functionality, um, but, you know, is essentially uh, inoperative. And this, this is, this kind of ties back to, I think it was Parker's talk where he's talking about the dollar. Um, so we're entering graceful degradation and companies, you know, especially international companies are aware of this uh, and they don't want to get dragged down with, with one ship um, since they do business everywhere. Uh, but of course, you know, going global creates more bureaucracy, which creates more, um, more slowness, which kind of exacerbates the problem they're trying to solve. So uh, you've seen every big corporation try to go into emerging markets, but it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult to meet the needs of those people too, especially you know, now that the internet is everywhere and social media is everywhere. Uh, every cultural narrative moves as fast as you know, the United States does. There's not that internet lag that there was maybe 15 years ago. Um, so globalization is interesting, but it's not really a solution in and of itself. Uh, this is kind of a, a point about information monopoly capitalism. So as, as the businesses globalize, they become more and more information-based businesses, um, which means they become more and more surveillance-based businesses. Um, so as these, as these organizations get bigger, uh, they also get a little scarier, um, and, and they start to move more aggressively, like I was saying about Facebook and Google. Um, so uh, the attempts by business to reverse the direction of this or, or find a way out um, have been to, like I said, get, move faster and get bigger. Um, so you know, consolidate, uh, buy competitors, um, open up new markets. Uh, they also you know, try to do more uh, by the web. They try to get a long tail audience of people everywhere. Um, so they're really, uh, they're wringing out every last dollar um, and every last consumer they can. Um, but it's not going to be enough. Their, their costs are, are too high and their uh, legacy infrastructure is too expensive. Um, so what we've seen from, from the biggest and smartest companies is that they've started to reorganize themselves to reduce hierarchy and try to move faster. Uh, so Microsoft is a big proponent of what's called responsive organization design. Um, this came from uh, the Yammer folks and when Microsoft acquired Yammer, kind of spread throughout the, the company. Uh, they did away with stack ranking and now they have much more of an open allocation uh, structure in many of their engineering groups. Um, GE and Pepsi have done similar things. Uh, GE in their capital group to be able to do deals faster uh, and Pepsi in their marketing group. One of the issues that Pepsi had was um, they, you know, Pepsi's kind of famous for their tone deaf marketing. They try to be in the moment and they usually miss and, and fall on their faces. And that's a result of uh, the, uh, the time that it takes for a local marketing department or a, you know, a young marketing department to pitch something to the senior people in New York and then for senior people in New York to approve it and then send the message back to whatever the, the locality is. That takes too long, the moment's passed. Um, so, you know, reorganizing like software companies is one of the ways that, that companies, big companies are trying to um, forestall the slowness. Uh, so like I said, they're trying to become more like GitHub and, and Spotify, which work more like networks than hierarchies. So I think that's, that's an important note. Um, I mentioned the responsive org design thing. If you go to responsive.org, they have all this propaganda about, you know, how to design your company. Um, Harvard Business Review uh, observed something a few years ago they called the rise of the super temp. A super temp is somebody that would be a senior director or partner level person. They're probably in their 40s or 50s or 60s, but instead they work kind of like a freelancer um, on a consulting basis. This is more and more common um, that these people are brought in in lieu of full-time directors. Uh, so these are some examples um, that you guys can look into later of 
self-managed companies. These are mostly outside the United States. This one's in the Netherlands. Um, this one's in France. Uh, these are companies that are operating more like networks. They use you know, sort of cooperative uh, governance structures. Um, Japan is really big on platform cooperatives. They have a, a ton of stores and a ton of money that flows through their platform cooperative system. Um, so, you know, I mentioned all this stuff to, to show you guys that there are efforts in the corporate world to organize in similar ways to uh, the way that, you know, Bitcoin engineers and other FOSS engineering groups organize. So, um, I think that's, that's uh, an interesting parallel and it just takes, you know, one narrative connection to, um, to bring them together. So, Taylorism, which is the idea of putting people on a production line, uh, you know, Henry Ford, it's also called Fordism, uh, he, he kind of evolved it, um, is great for manufacturing, but the question is, what is the right structure for a global digital services business on the internet? Uh, and what does Bitcoin have to do with that? Uh, so, fortunately, there's an answer to that already. It didn't come from me. It came from this uh, professor, John Cotter. Um, about 10 years ago, he came up with this idea of the dual OS company. So he observed the same thing, that companies were trying to move more quickly. And he said, you shouldn't have just one hierarchical company that tries to move faster. You should actually split the company into two. Um, you should split it into a hierarchy and a network. And the network operates by emergent consensus. I'm sure you guys have heard that term before. It comes from biology, the idea that you know, a flock of seagulls can kind of move together without any one you know, seagull being the boss. Um, that's similar to the way that you know, open allocation projects or networks work. Um, so he's trying to harness that in, in a corporate context. So what he says is hierarchies are good for planning, for creating budgets, defining roles, HR, and measuring results. Uh, but what, you know, what they do not do well is identify the most important hazards and opportunities early enough, formulate creative strategic initiatives nimbly enough, and implement them fast enough. And this is why corporations end up either failing or hiring consultants to try to survive. Um, so the idea to, to make a dual OS company is to have half of the, the company be sort of contingent people that aren't full-timers. Uh, they may be paid on an incentive basis or on a bounty basis. They may be volunteers. They may be highly skilled. They may be not so highly skilled. Um, the goal is to give them really clear-cut work so they always add value uh, and to compensate them in a way that you know, sets the incentives correctly. Um, but the purpose of the network is to always be surveying the business and the market um, and the competitors and to be pulling information into the hierarchy. So you could think of, you know, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter like I do, um, you sort of get a sense of what folks are doing before, let's say, someone who doesn't spend time on the social web. Um, you can sort of intimate, you know, maybe what your competitors are doing or what, what other partners are doing. Um, so the idea is to have uh, half your company be out there sort of in the, in the marketplace, in the world, and, and trying to collect information instead of always be playing catch-up. Um, so he says about at least 10% of the company should be um, full-time employees, but, but the rest could be network. Uh, and like I said, they should be you know, carefully selected. There's lots of parameters around that, but um, this is you know, his, his approach. So uh, obviously we're alighting a lot of details here, but what would happen if a company if companies in general did adopt a dual OS model, and, and what does that have to do with Bitcoin, or how does Bitcoin help? Um, so, for one thing, new business models would emerge where the products are data. Uh, I think a lot of people have talked about this, you know, paying for API calls, things like that. Um, it would mean that a lot of workers never have a full-time traditional role. I think that's already kind of the case. There are a lot of people that just do contingent work, you know, especially younger folks, um, and they like that for lifestyle purposes. Uh, like I said, there's going to be much more kind of scavenger hunt or, or bounty-based work. Um, this, the Signal team has something called BitHub where they you know, pay bounties for, um, 
for bugs, and Gitcoin is sort of similar, although obviously that's tied in with a whole other mess. Uh, so identity and communication will, will change. Uh, this idea of stigmergy comes from a, a woman named Heather Marsh, who's written a little bit about um, how systems organize. Uh, stigmergy is the idea of just ad hoc collaboration that produces something useful or valuable, and Bitcoin's an example of that. Um, communal rule, rule enforcement, um, and you know, for the employees, you know, expertise without oligarchy. So the, the, in systems like this, the idea is that the person who knows the most, uh, generally their opinion is, is elevated to the fore, or the person that's doing the work, the person that's on the margin. Um, so what is this, what is this, you know, how should we think about this, or what should we, what should we be saying to the outside world? So I have three or four slides here at the end that are takeaways. So if you've ignored everything prior, these are the important slides. Um, why Bitcoin? If we're entering a world of uh, dual OS corporations where these, these organizations need to move faster, well, how is, a, how is a global corporation supposed to operate with some contingent employees in sort of a, uh, a decentralized fashion um, when there's a risk of internal fraud and the risk of external uh, counterparty non-payment, right? So you need some type of guaranteed transparent settlement that works internationally that um, doesn't need some arbitration court to, to step in if something goes wrong or if someone doesn't send the payment they said they would. Uh, you need something that is you know, verifiable, um, and that's Bitcoin. Uh, you also need some way to pay people that are outside the United States and are working on strange uh, and sometimes contingent compensation models. So let's say you have you know, 20,000 employees in some foreign country that you pay you know, a few bucks a day to collect consumer price data locally, um, but they all work different hours and they all kind of have a different approach. Um, how are you supposed to structure a payroll system for that? You, you need programmable money. Um, and it needs to be something, like I said, that they will trust and receive overseas um, and not look twice at like some you know, shitcoin. Uh, if you're a web business, how do you collect revenue from all these different countries? So if I'm an American and I'm running a web store and I want to open my web store to everyone all over the world, I don't want all their currencies. All right? I pay my rent and my utilities in dollars. I want dollars. Um, if I receive Bitcoin, I can get Bitcoin liquidity into dollars very easily and that solves my problem. I don't have to worry about handling currencies from all these different places. I can capture my long tail. I can reach you know, that one person in Sri Lanka that is my customer, even if he or she's the only one. Um, and that's, you know, that's the way to build a market uh, in a digital sense. Um, and also, what digital asset has the security and the liquidity necessary for, for this kind of remittance? So, uh, you know, on the OTC side, we trade a lot of Bitcoin US dollar, and people tell me all the time, you know, Bitcoin is gonna, it's gonna lose out to some faster coin, some, you know, whatever the latest thing is. And the truth is, uh, the reason it won't is because there's no one on the other side of that trade that wants that coin. So if I'm remitting Bitcoin to Nigeria, um, I can definitely get someone to buy Bitcoin from me in Nigeria and give me Naira. But if I'm sending shitcoin B, you know, who's going to buy that from me in Nigeria at, you know, at a low slippage price? Nobody. So um, corporations need this kind of liquidity if they're going to be moving a lot of funds. Uh, Bitcoin is really the only option. So, um, and it's, of course, it's dirt cheap and it's available 24-7 everywhere. Um, so as far as I can tell, that's, uh, that's the only infrastructure that will accomplish this dual OS future. And dual OS is the only shot I think that corporations have at, at keeping our interest, um, at least the, the ones that are alive today. So if you have questions about this presentation or you, you want the link, uh, just ping me on Twitter. Happy to share it, but uh, happy to take questions too.
fantastic presentation, Chris. Uh, I think we're still all digesting it. It went by so fast. Uh, and what I'm what I'm um, curious about is we're seeing a sort of a bifurcation in how companies work. Uh, you've got the big companies, you've got the Twitters, you've got the Facebooks, uh, and they're all co-opting with the government. <clears throat> and then you have uh, the rest of us scrambling to create something that operates outside of the totalitarian regimes that are forming. Uh, do you have any ideas or comments on that? Uh, yes. So the um uh, any do any domestically anchored company is always going to be uh, subject to whoever the the local regulator or uh, you know the the local powers are the local regime, uh, and so I think one of the things that you see you see um, QE again and again, for example, it, like uh, my interpretation of that is that is those are corporations in the financial services industry that have learned how to hack the system to print money. And um, the, the, you know, the consumer products corporations, the other ones outside of financial services, are um, almost as smart, and they've, they've collectively figured out a way to uh, make the government puke money every 10 years. So, um, so on the one hand, they are beholden to uh, you know, maybe collaborating with local governments. On the other hand, they're, you know, they're busy trying to bilk money out of them. Um, who loses in all this? It's the people using the service who are sort of third parties to all this, uh, which is why I think you know, you've seen more and more services uh, like Parler and Gab pop up because they're, they're agnostic to the content. They're just trying to run a service. That doesn't make money unless you're using really, really cheap infrastructure. Uh, I don't think the way that corporations are run today, um, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't think Twitter really can make money off of advertising in a sustainable way without um, having to make unseemly deals and cut corners and do things that users don't like. So uh, I think ultimately users will, you know, kind of vote with their feet uh, and move towards platforms that are content agnostic and don't, don't mess with them so much. But I don't know if that answers your question. But That's the answer I was looking for. Thank okay. you. Cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, quick question. A lot of people talk about the concept of like a decentralized organization or you know we saw what happened with Ethereum when they tried the DAO uh, but what about, what do you think about people building that on Bitcoin and the future of corporations and uh, how they could utilize uh, the DAO model yeah so I think uh, there there's certainly something there um, I, I think uh, you know I'll kind of fall back on the this this dual OS uh, thesis in saying that um, that there is a lot of value to be gained from that, but um, you really still need, I think in most cases, in most businesses that exist today, uh, you still need a group of people that are highly, highly enfranchised and highly focused and are not um, l as low time preference, or excuse me, as high time preference. So you need people that are incentivized on very, very long time frames. And in most cases, the only incentive that really does that is reputation. So if you take the CEO job of a company in 10 years, you want that company to be doing much better than when you started because it reflects well on you and it, you know, it enables you to get better gigs after that. Uh, so I, I think the, the DAO thing is, is, um, is very useful for the, the network part, but it, it sort of ignores um, how, how much value and productivity you get out of ego-driven people who, who want to make a name for themselves. So that's that.
Okay, I have a question. Do you think the dual OS system would allow the super temps, they're like the engineers, right, the builders, they would essentially become little pods of entrepreneurs and they could work for any organization, right? They That's have right. a certain skill set, doesn't matter who they're working for. And so then the, the other side of that dual OS just kind of becomes a, a you know, company as a service, but it's the engineers that really run the show, right? Yeah, that's a, a really astute observation. So they're the, um, my favorite term for like the business people, the people that, you know, push paper is the techno structure. Uh, and the idea is that with programmable money, you could basically automate the entire techno structure over, you know, a few decades. So I don't think it could happen right away, but yes, absolutely. Those people are, are you know, th that's who's in that 49% of jobs that are going to be automated. It's, uh, it's accountants. It is other people making kind of low level decisions. Um, uh, you know, people doing coordinator jobs or associate level jobs, um, that stuff, you know, if it's, if they're not, if they're non-engineering roles or they're non-creative uh, roles, let's say, I think, yeah, they will be automated and it will just be a company of engineers, which will be nice. Hey, Chris. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Um, I'm very interested in getting the slides because I have a digital marketing agency, so I was very interested in the first part of your presentation. <clears throat> Sorry, cold. Um, for talking about how everything's going to be more of a network versus the hierarchy. Can you go a little bit more into that? I definitely want to get the slides because it went really fast. Sure. Um, so I wouldn't say everything's going to be a network. I, I, my argument would be that um, there are more and more leaderless networks, or excuse me, more and more leaderless movements because the movement pops up so fast that there is no one individual that's sort of uh, like preeminent in the group. Um, so a, a lot of times it's Facebook groups that, that engender this. Uh, the Tahir Square protest in 2011 in Egypt was um, coordinated on a Facebook page by a, a young kid that was working at Google. Um, and he was interviewed later and he like, was sort of overwhelmed by what had happened because he, all, to his knowledge he was just creating a Facebook page. So um, I don't know if that clarifies things for you at all, but um, yeah, I guess mainly because I, I run a digital marketing agency, so I'm looking at the, you call them the super temps or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you talked about a gentleman in Harvard and he was, you, you went really quickly and you read it really fast what he was saying. I mm -hmm. guess that specific part, I wanted to just go a little more in depth. Sure, sure, I can go back. You went really fast. Oh, no, I can't go back. You'll never know. Well, I'll, I'll uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put the slides out. Um, sorry for going so fast. Like I said, it's a, it's a long deck and uh, only no 25 worries. minutes. All right, I'll just get the deck, thanks. Okay, sure. All right, anybody else? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the BitBlockBoom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers at bitblockboom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS, that's C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope to meet you at next year's BitBlockBoom conference in Dallas, Texas, and thanks for listening. Bit block,